0: okay you got i told you last week we'd give you an updated corrected color version of the 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 cheat sheet study sheet whatever you want to call it and so i sent that to debbie today except what i actually sent to debbie is like my full note packet with half of which i skipped because you really don't need to worry about it so this is still not technically the right one though the information is correct but there's a whole lot of stuff on here some of it's shorthand but you go, what on earth is realized eschatology? Well, if you want to go there, you can read a little summary of it, but don't worry. There's a whole lot more here than what you need to know. Uh, so keep it for your own reference, but we will give you, I will make sure to email. The problem is, I, must, I saved this file under the wrong section heading. So when I emailed Debbie the correct file name, I sent the wrong file because I mislabeled it. So. You go. Wow, there's a lot here. Pastor didn't cover last week. Yes, there is. Uh, there is a lot there I didn't cover last week. So, okay. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me now to the book of Revelation. And as you do that, I just I want to remind all of us when we come to the book of Revelation, it's it's easy to um, it's easy to get locked in, afraid by, caught up in speculating on all the all the prophecy, all the end time stuff, all that's there. And forget that at the core, John the Apostle was on the island of Patmos, God gave him a real message to write to seven literal churches filled with real flesh and blood believers like you and me, brothers and sisters in Christ, all of whom were facing uh, challenges, hardships, sufferings, who were living in a time where where, where after Nero's wave of persecution that was probably more... Uh, localized to Rome uh, there was starting to be more movement even though it would still would pop up in in local pockets there was more movement under Domitian to to a true empire-wide persecution and and locally speaking those churches in in what we what Scripture would call Asia, Asia Minor, we would know as modern-day Turkey. They were facing real hardship. They were facing real suffering and hardship for faithfulness, and they were being challenged with real calls to compromise, to compromise fidelity to Christ, to compromise on their love for Christ. They were facing real challenges to compromise that would have provided them with an ease and comfort and physical safety of life. And remember, this was all taking place back in a day where, where, where maybe to, to, to try to show where, where I think there's ways we can identify, but there's an aspect of, of where we come from as Americans that we can't. And I know some will chuckle at this statement, so just, just understand the general idea. But in America, if we don't like what's going on politically, there is still at least the idea that every two to four years you can go cast a vote and try to change it. That if you live in a state that represents your values, they're they're nationally representing in contrast to states aren't. There is no representation in the Roman Empire. It's just absolute, total, authoritarian government. And there is no representation for believers. I'll mention more Sunday, but something that has taken place as a shift at the time of John's writing is for a long time, though Christianity faced uh, suffering a, a persecution, assault. A, de- depending on how places from from the Jewish community, in the eyes of Rome, Christians are just another version of Judaism, another sect of Judaism, and so so they got to kind of hide from the full wrath of Rome for a while. But by the point we get to now, several things have, have happened. Uh, the Jews, one in Israel, have, have launched a full rebellion against Rome and Rome's crushed them in 70 and 72 AD. Not only that, but the Jewish, uh, the Jewish rabbi scholars, they've issued an edict that has clearly said, if you are a Christian, you're not a Jew and you're not welcome in the synagogue and we don't like you. So they're, now they're... There is no hiding under that umbrella. And Domitian, to bring political unity, is actively sending people out where you must go and you must confess Caesar as Lord and God. So it's in the midst of real hard times where there's not a lot to look forward to with the illusion of, ch- of something changing. It's not like they go, well, you know what, if we just bide our time, we've got this real charismatic, solid Christian young man, and we'll just, we'll just get him, or Christian young woman, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just promote them for election as emperor. There's no election. There's nothing. And so we need to remember that the message of Revelation... And of the end of time is written to real people facing a real challenge because it can help us maybe guard against jumping off into the speculation train and also not be afraid of it, but realize you and I are supposed to walk away from reading and studying the book of Revelation elated, encouraged, and worshipful. So that said, Revelation 4. We're going through the seven letters on Sunday, so we'll we'll go through those. But Revelation 4. John writes and he says, after these things I looked. Now after what things? After the revelation of Jesus in chapter 1, that incredible picture of the glory of who Jesus is, after he's written down Jesus' instruction to the seven churches, chapters 2 and 3. After these things took place, I looked and behold a door open in heaven and the first voice which the first voice, which I had heard, the one like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, "Come up here, and I will show you what immediately, what must take place after these things." Immediately, I was in the spirit. Now. That may sound kind of strange, but think about when Paul in, in 2 Corinthians talks about how there was this point, he was caught up into the third heaven, he saw things of which he cannot describe, and he says, I don't know if I was there physically or there in spirit. John makes clear, he's not physically, his body still on the island of Patmos, but somehow in some way he caught up in spirit, this door has been opened. Now I'll just give you a heads up. On your paper, we discuss different views, millennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism. There are some in that category of dispensational premillennialism that see the statement of an open door in chapter 4 as a reference to a pre-tribulation rapture of the church where God just whisks all of the believing body of Christ off the earth and into heaven. That said, even some of those who do believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, That is not good exegesis here. John is not describing something metaphorically by saying there's an open door. He is literally describing his experience. I heard the voice, I looked up, I saw a door that was open to me to go into heaven. I didn't see it open, but I, when I looked up, I saw that it was open for me to go up. And so I went up after I heard the voice say, come on up here, I'm gonna show you what's gonna take place. So we wanna be careful if you read something and go, oh, well, there's the verse that says, that, that honestly, in, in fairness, and trying to be fair with good, solid, I've taught us, and I'll teach us again how to do good, solid Bible reading. We want to exegete the scripture, not read into the scripture, that would be reading in to make that statement there. All he's saying is, I heard the voice, I looked up, there was a door wide open, and I was told to come up. So I came up immediately, and I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. Now that right there ought to just be great news. I was caught up to the place of absolute power and control. And when I got up there in heaven, there's a throne. And there's one sitting on it. It wasn't empty. There wasn't someone slouched over. There wasn't somebody shaking. There was someone firmly seated on that throne. And He, the one who is seated on the throne, He who was sitting like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and a rainbow or a halo was around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Now, I, I, I tried to look a couple pictures up, and I wouldn't—I just didn't find something. Everything is so visual here, and I'm sorry I don't have a great picture because I, I'm, I just couldn't find a really great picture. Maybe I can get into the AI stuff and just type Bible verses in and see what it can come up with for us. Jasper is a translucent kind of stone like a diamond. And Sardius is a red kind of stone. He says, I saw one who was on the throne and the appearance of that one, it was like this beautiful mosaic of of the clearness and purity of diamonds with the brilliance of red. And we don't know when he says rainbow, is it a literal rainbow that with all the colors and the green just stood out? Or was it... Something in the shape of a rainbow, the shape of a halo, but the whole thing was emerald green. That's that's what tends, and as I've looked through it, tends to be what I think it's saying is there's this beautiful green brilliance that was surrounding, and, and don't miss it. It says this was the, the 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 rainbow of emerald was around the throne, and on the throne was one whose appearance was like jasper and and red stone, red jewel. And you go, well, that's a real strange depiction of God. Well, remember, church family, God's glory is such that no man may see it and live. John's just grasping at straws to describe what he sees. Now, there are some who will take it a step further and say that the appearance of Jasper, with this, this clarity of diamond, it, it alludes to the purity of God, the the purity the majesty of god that the red colored stone the sardius is an allusion to his judgment and wrath the, the rainbow is a reminder of his faithfulness and it's possible there are those allusions but it's also possible we, we may just be reading more into what john at this point is just trying to say is this is what i saw it was brilliant it was beautiful it was majestic And around this throne, there were 24 thrones. And upon those thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now we'll come back to, well, who are these guys? We'll come back to that. Just take note for now. Here's God's throne. And around that throne, we don't know if it's a whole circle surrounding it, if it's a semi-circle. He didn't describe how the room's set up. There's not a room request form that he's given in there in heaven. He just... For those of you who've had to fill those out, you'll get that joke and understand what that means. Um, somewhere, Karen is uh, Small is watching online and laughing. There are 24 thrones around the throne. They're clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads. And this is what it says. Out of the, the throne came flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of, of thunder. Out of the throne came sounds of power, of majesty, of almightiness. Of, I, I mean, think about... I remember one summer in college when I, I stayed at DBU as a summer RA, and that summer, for whatever reason, we just had incredible thunderstorms roll through. And the dorm had a covered outdoor patio where somehow you could, just, you could sit there and stay relatively safe and dry, but just experience the, the sky would light up, the rain coming down. There is a power and a majesty to a, a wonderful Texas thunderstorm. We'll ramp that up. There is power, majesty, dominion coming from the throne. The one who sits on the throne is is mighty, is Almighty, and it says before, before the throne, the seven lamps of burning fire before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Again, remember, at this point, now that we've stepped into chapter four, we're in what genre of scripture is called uh, apocalyptic. So we're going to be high levels of imagery and symbolism and. We've got to be careful to notice, well, when is it symbolic versus when is it just a description? But here, this, this lamp before the throne of God is different than the lampstands we're talking about on Sundays where those represent the churches. Here, this lamp that's forever burning, seven lamps forever burning are the seven spirits of God. Remember the number seven is the number of perfection in Scripture. Well, who is the perfect spirit of God? It's the Holy Spirit. the third person of the trinity the one who is perfect in power perfect in wisdom perfect in position perfect in eternality the one who is perfectly god the one who bears lights the holy spirit who convicts us of our sin it's the holy spirit who regenerates our heart in salvation it's the holy spirit who sheds the light of the light of god into the darkness Of our hearts, it's who He is and and what He does. So, who is before the the throne of uh, of the Father? If we're going to use Trinity language here, it's it's the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. Now, won't belabor the point. It's possible. That's just just a description of what John's seeing. It's also possible. Think about many times in Scripture when we see that sea language. Sea typically is. Something turbulent, wild, chaotic, choppy. You don't see through it. Think of a raging storm on the waves and it describes the chaos, the wickedness, the danger, the unpredictability of mankind's sin. And if there's an illusion here, then it means from our perspective, that's what things look like. A nasty storm at sea. From God's perspective, it's a crystal sea. Calm, still, In complete submission, because nothing is chaotic to God. Clear, fully known and seen by Him. And in the center, around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature, like a calf or ox, the third creature, had a face like that of a man, the fourth creature, was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now, who are the four living creatures? This is a wild description. I have seen people type this in and spit out AI-generated images, and they're creepy as all get out. And I'm not sure that's necessarily what John's goal here is to go, angels are creepy, uh, what he is describing, uh, he's describing four beings, four, four spiritual beings that are before the throne of God. There are different. There, there are certainly clear allusions when you read the four of these beings and the four beasts, the four the four cherubim of Ezekiel found in Ezekiel chapter one and Ezekiel chapter ten. There's there's clearly parallels, though there's also some ways in which they differ slightly from Ezekiel's cherubim. So as far as who are these. These four living creatures, well, they're either cherubim, and, and, and Ezekiel and, and John just see some different aspects of them. Or, because one of the big differences between Ezekiel and John's description is Ezekiel's Ezekiel's beasts seem to have the face of all four of those beasts and four wings. These seem to be one individual be, You know, one looks like a lion, one looks like an ox, and these have six wings. But this is not the only place in Scripture we've seen six-winged angels who are surrounding the throne of God, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's another place we see that. It's Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is given a glimpse into the throne room of God, and he sees the seraphim surrounding the throne of God, declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. There is debate, people, Joe, is there symbolism? In, in these beings, does the lion say that God is perfect in his authority because the lion is the king of the animal world? As, is the ox God is perfect in his activity because the ox is a servant animal who uses power for the benefit of others? Man, God's perfect in his majesty because man is the apex and pinnacle of all his creation. Eagle, God is perfect in his deity because the eagle soars above. The king of the birds, the skies, the domain of the divine. And there's other, there's other thoughts out there as well. And some of that or all of that or none of that may be accurate. The more important thing than trying to figure out all the symbolism of the four living beasts is realize these are morally perfect, without sin. Spiritual beings created by God who do not rest day or night and declare, point is not to get caught up in what do these things look like and what the point is look what they say they say holy 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 that word holy we tend to think of it in uh, in a a moral connotation right or wrong good or bad and in that sense you would think okay god is perfect 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 well god is without without sin without sin without sin and and certainly that's accurate but the word holy is actually beyond just simple moral purity. The word holy in and of itself, both in the Old and New Testament, it refers to one who is entirely other, unique, distinct, separated out. In fact, the term saint flows out of the word for holy. What is a saint? One who has been separated out, who has been called apart. God is not just morally pure. He, to be holy, holy, holy in, in and in a triple repetition in, in, in the Old Testament in Hebrew doesn't mean you're just holy. It doesn't mean you're just really holy. It means you are completely and totally unique and different in your holiness. What are they saying here? God, God is completely and totally unique and beyond and, and, and outside anything in all creation. No, nothing in creation can, can remotely accurately describe Him because He's beyond all creation. You've heard me say it before, part of the reason it's hard for us to grasp the understanding of a triune God is because we're not triune and nothing in creation is triune. It's part of God's otherness. He's not like us. We bear His likeness, but He's not like us. We're the creature, He's the creator, we're the the clay, He's the potter. He is holy, holy, holy. Holy. And not only that, but holy, 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 triple repeated. He's not just holy, holy, holy because he's holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Three and one. Holy is the Father, holy is the Son, holy is the Spirit, three and one. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the God, Almighty, Almighty, power, Almighty All Power. Who was, who is, who is to come, eternal. The one who was at the be- who was before the beginning, the one who is after the end, the, the create. Oh my goodness, what a credible just display of, of, of adoration and praise they give to God. And, and look what happens when the living creatures, verse 9, give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne. And they will worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their crowns. Now that word crowns, we're going to really see that this Sunday in, a, in, in Revelation 2. That word crowns, it's Stephanos. It's, it's a victor's crown. Don't think a royal crown like King John of England and the Queen's royal jewels. It's a victor's wreath. It's, it's what you were given as the athlete when you came in first place. It's, it's what you get for being the victor. Here are these elders. They possess some kind of crown, a a reward for overcoming. And they take their crown, and what do they do with it? They don't keep it. They lay it down in worship. They give it back. They didn't earn it. They did not merit it. And nothing they have would they withhold from the one to whom it is due and belong the one to whom by whose grace was sufficient to enable them to overcome they lay it down they worship they they fall down and these 24 elders as they do it they say worthy are you our lord and our god to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and and were created They fall down and and, and when they say all all glory and honor and power are yours, don't misunderstand that. They're not saying, well, God, you you lack some glory, honor, and power, so we're giving it to you. No, no, no. The statement is, all glory and honor and power, all that exists, it's God's. And when you look at His creation, it talks about that man has got a certain honor and glory because we're made in the image of God. Any honor and glory that I am due and that I possess as a human being, it all belongs to Him. Because He's the rightful owner, distributor, author, giver, it all belongs to Him because He is worthy. And here specifically, they, they hone in on, if you want to look at chapter 4, and, and I don't, we'll see here. Chapter 4. We're really honing in on when we look at God from, from a Trinity, the person of the Father, and they're praising Him for His worthiness, for His glory, His honor, His power, and specifically for the fact that He created. And we've said this before. None of us would exist if God didn't create us. The only reason we continue to exist is because God sustains us. That includes all the people who run around blaspheming and hating on His name, yet in His grace, He gives them the breath of life and causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Just not on Texas? <laughs> South of Waco? Because some parts got some rain this week. He's worthy. So all of a sudden, how does, how does this transition and to write down all the things that will be, how does it start? It starts with a scene in the throne room of heaven, where the picture is one of a majestic, glorious, almighty, all-powerful, holy, holy, holy God, firmly and, and completely seated on His throne, surrounded by beings of glory and might and power that would cause us to, to panic should one appear in this room right now, declaring that not they are worthy, but alone God is worthy. Those of you facing suffering from a despot ruler living under economic... Repression and oppression because you refuse to offer the incense. Those of you who are suffering, those of you who have been kicked out of your families, those of you who have suffered loss, those of you for whom the world is uncertain, tomorrow poses the threat of death, those of you for whom it seems like there is no hope, listen, i stepped into heaven and here's what I saw. And in this scene... In this scene, it it steps in to chapter 5. Really, chapter 4 and 5 go together. But I think as I'm watching, because I don't want to stretch it, let me just draw some application from 4, and we'll come back to 5 next week. But really, 4 and 5 go hand in hand, because 5 is all of a sudden. I'll just summarize it briefly, because I do think it's important. Here's John, and he sees in chapter 5, there's a scroll, a book brought out. And there's a search that goes out through all of heaven, through all of earth, even through all of the dead, to find somebody who's worthy to open the book. And no one could be found. And John starts weeping. He's so caught up in this moment. There's no one to be found. There's no hope. How, how is the book's not going to be opened? And, and, and one of the elders says, cut it out, would be the literal English translation. The Lamb who's victorious is worthy. The Lion of Judah, the root of David, and all of a sudden chapter five hones in on the worthiness of Jesus Christ, and Jesus opens the book. Jesus is worthy. Jesus opens the book. Jesus propels things forward. And and there's a further scene of all of heaven surrounding. And and again, I don't want to cut it short, so we'll come back to there next week. But but simply point, this is how the, be- the beginning of the of the prophecy of Revelation starts. It doesn't start with wild, crazy things where we're scratching our head going, Now exactly okay, who who's the beast and when does he come? come and 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 this person comes out here in a seven headed dragon and this that no it starts with a clear depiction that god is worthy he's on his throne he's mighty he's powerful he's deserving of one and one only response absolute worship and surrender which by the way worship and absolute surrender those aren't two things absolute surrender is the only acceptable form of worship That for you and I, we need to understand God is on His throne. We need to understand that God being on His throne means He is God. We are not. He is worthy. We are not. It's all about Him. It's not about us. He is worthy of my all. He is worthy of true worship. He is worthy of true worship even when things are hard. Even when I suffer loss for His sake. Even when there is suffering. He is worthy. He is worthy of me refusing to capitulate in any way to the right or to the left that would tarnish Honoring Him in His way. He is worthy. He's praised for His holiness, for His eternality, His sovereignty, His work in creation. By the way, that, that statement they say, worthy are You, our Lord and our God. I didn't know this, but it was common in, in, in Roman days. And think about part of what they're suffering is that Domitian has now said for political unity, You, when when, when the emperor... Cart rolls through town. You've got to come in here, take that incense and declare, Caesar is Lord and God. If you don't do it, you're going to get kicked out of the trade guilds. If you don't do it, you might be arrested. By the way, when you got arrested in Roman world, that didn't mean you just sat in a taxpayer-funded jail cell. You were arrested for the purpose of either being released and fined, placed into exile miles and miles away, or killed. Prison was just a couple day waiting for the judge to sentence you to one of three outcomes. Mostly exile or killed. One of two usually. And if if, if the emperor ever entered, it was customary when the emperor entered to greet the entrance of the emperor. Everybody was supposed to say, you are worthy. And Domitian came and added to it that you'll say you are worthy, our Lord and God. Make no mistake what John is saying here. The elders fall down. They don't fall down to emperor Domitian. There is only one who is worthy who is our Lord and God. Yet... We have the audacity to churn our lives all about us. We have the audacity as churches. Do you, this scene in heaven, you know what's not there? Yeah, I don't really like that holy, holy, holy. That was about 50 years ago's music style. Can we update it? Can you bring back the rest of the choir? Can you add a drum kit to it? It's too hot in here. I'd rather have pews and not nothing. I don't like the time of this worship service. Could we go back to doing it the other time? Now, I'm not trying to be harsh or ugly, but do you realize how disappointed and grieved God must be at the nonsense we run around doing in the American church? Why, our brothers and sisters are dying in love for Jesus Christ because He's worthy. What on earth is wrong with us? It's because we've got a, got, bought a gospel that says I don't want to go to hell, but I want to have life my way and Jesus makes it good too. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is I need to be freed from my sin because He is God and I need Him. And there's only one way to be restored. And so when we come back to a passage like Sunday, when we think about a passage like the Ephesian church, that from every way we would look at a church, they're perfect. And Jesus says, but somewhere along the way, you left loving me. We've got to ask ourselves, church family, do we love him? Is he worthy? Or do we just know the right responses to the right words? And understand, my passion is in no way directed as anger, animosity. It is as much inward as it is outward. It is looking and going. If He is really worthy, then we have got to live and act like it. And by act like it, not act, because that presents something false. Just live like it. Gripped and apprehended. Oh my goodness, we get upset when our ministry is not recognized. How dare someone change the ministry I started You're going to tear down that building that has my name on it as if ministry's about me. It's not. But man, have I known a lot of pastors who get hacked when you go step on their legacy. Praise God, I got to know a really great pastor who had a skyscraper named after him. And when they sold it and tore it down, he wrote an article I don't care. Because it's not about my name on the building. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about God. I better not do ministry for what I can get recognized and known out of it. It's about doing ministry as a response to Him. He's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. Listen. We don't know what tomorrow holds. There could be a great awakening unlike anything we've ever seen. We could be on the doorstep of the elimination of freedom and religion in our country as we know it forevermore. Either way you go, the call is the same. To love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength because He alone is worthy. But if we don't right now today allow the Lord to scalpel our hearts and to say, Lord, is there any part of my life I am withholding from you where I don't believe you are worthy, where I am not adoring you? Is there any part of my life that falls under that? Don't be mistaken. We'll capitulate both ways. We'll capitulate in prosperity and we'll capitulate under suffering because at the root of the problem is we think it's all about us. And it's not, church family. And I pray so hard for us as a church that as the Holy Spirit moves us, we would have humble, responsive hands that says, Lord, when, someone, when we meet together as a church, when people walk out of the room, may they go, man, all I saw was the glory of God. And make no mistake, I'm not, when I've used the church examples, I'm not picking on anything choir or band or Sunday school or this or that. I'm just using stuff that I know we like to fight about in churches normally. And I just think it breaks the heart of God. And not only that, if God showed up in that kind of glory, we'd be in a panic. May we be a people, church family, that are all about Him because it is all about Him and He is secure on His throne. All right, it's 6.55. I got to stop because I told you I'd finish at five till. So love you, church family. I'm grateful for you. Uh, I'm grateful and excited for the days ahead that God wants to move in us and through us. And may we ever be known as a people who worships him alone. Let me pray and we will see you back Sunday. Father, thank you so much. As we are here tonight, you are on your throne. we don't hear we don't hear the song of the living creatures at this moment like John did but we know from your word if they don't rest day and night declaring your praise that song is echoing throughout the chambers of heaven every one of us in this room has loved ones that are there with you they hear that song And they respond with joy in their hearts by prostrating themselves before Your feet. Lord, for those of us who are here, this side of heaven, in this world, Lord, in my life included, may You and the the kindness and love and Your loving kindness towards us. Lord, whatever in our life is about us, may You expose it so we can drop it, turn from it, that we can stare with joy and wonder into the amazement of the glory of your face. And may we be people, Lord, who worship you. May we be people who, whether tomorrow brings a thousand people coming to faith, or if tomorrow brings all of us in a prison, we would be the exact same kind of people people who worship you for who you are, people secure. Because you're on your throne. People who love you because you are worthy of all of our surrender and worship. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.